We return this morning to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 26 and considering through verse 31. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. For if we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for the judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries, the enemies, the unsaved. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be that thought shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and had done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him, capital H, that has said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Father, this morning there is no lack of seriousness as we read such a passage. We understand that there are things dealt with here that are most sober. And yet we also see, beautifully represented in the text, how that you as God do not let go. And that we who are your family can expect to be lovingly chastised that we might stand before you in the coming day in all honor and purity. Thank you for the prospects of the text. Help us as we deal with its difficulty. Help us to be rightfully reverent, as the text demands, rightfully joyful, as the text provides. And for that, we will praise you and thank you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. American jurisprudence recognizes degrees of felony violation. First-degree murder, by definition, involves willful premeditation and intention with malice aforethought. Second-degree murder involves willful intention without premeditation and specific plan for violation. Third-degree murder, which is distinguished from manslaughter, involves reckless behavior 
without intention to violate any particular other person, although persons are violated. It is immediately clear in verse 26 that the warning raised here has to do with willful sin, or you might think of it as sin in the first degree. But the whole of the warning from 26 to 31 allows us to see that we are talking about a serious willfulness on behalf of a person that is directed towards the dishonor of the person in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, a person who is a living dishonor to Christ. The severe warning found here must be understood in the light of three exhortations that precede the warning uh, back in 19 uh, through 25, those exhortations being draw near, 22, hold fast, 23, and consider one another, uh, 24. In our first goal over this warning, last time together at the communion hour, uh, we introduced the thought of a person that we could call friendly to the things of God and the people of God that was in fact yet unsaved and postured before God as enemy still. This friendly enemy is what the Bible calls an apostate. This person may well present themselves as one among God's people. This person may be believed to be one of God's family and yet will prove in time not to have ever been saved. Now we know that no one can lose their salvation, but surely people can be thought to be saved that are not. And indeed, some people can think they are saved who are not. People can think themselves to be okay when they have not landed by way of confidence and dependence upon faith's only legitimate object. And that object is Christ. We do not believe in believing. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The warning here is pretty straightforward in understanding if you have the apostate in view. But last week, we also said that there is more to this warning than just a simple addressing of apostasy. At the end of our time, we also introduced the fact that there are people, God's people, that we certainly might call friendly, and yet continue to act as if enemies to God. Uh, they are uh, uh, saved people, and yet, indeed, there is overt uh, uh, rebellion and overt sin that is associated with their life, contrary to their calling in Christ Jesus. I think the best terms to use to describe these two different categories of people are friendly adversaries and adversarial friends. 
Friendly adversaries are people that are perceived to be God's people, perceived to be the Lord's people, but in truth are still in an adversarial position before God. The second group of people are friends of God in the sense that they have embraced Christ, and yet they currently have postured themselves in an adversarial position. They are not friendly adversaries. They are indeed adversarial friends. And it is the adversarial friend that we are going to particularly think upon now for the remainder of this particular hour, because these are they that live contrary to the pattern of Christ for an extended period of time on earth. And as we saw briefly last week, the key statement of this warning, that actually is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32 at verse 30, has to do with God being the one who reserves for himself vengeance on all unrighteousness. This truth is immediately brought to bear upon the fact that, quote, the Lord shall judge, and I would be relieved and would more happily preach to you in this hour if it said, the Lord will judge the unbeliever. But in fact, as we made point of emphasis last week at verse 30, the text says, the Lord shall judge. Next two words. The next two words are? I I didn't hear you. I still didn't hear you. His people. That's me. That's you. Verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God that judges all on righteousness. Now, is that speaking only about the apostate? No. No, absolutely not. This is likewise speaking about the judgment of God concerning his wayward people. God judges all on righteousness. Both the unbeliever and the believer are subject to him with whom we have to do. And I might add the word business. Every one of us are subject to God with whom we have to do business. Spiritual business. In this passage, that classic Contrast continues between Moses and the law and Jesus as our Lord in order to underscore the superiority of the Lord in all things. In this case, the punishment of sin under the Lord is greater than punishment under the law. Now, that thought, as a basic thought, is not too hard to grasp. After all, the punishment of sin under the law fell upon animal heads. And the punishment of sin uh, 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 under the Lord fell on the Lord. So you can see the difference just in the aspect of the sacrifice that was made. But because of this argument based upon the punishment of the Lord over the law... You have a particular point of emphasis that punishment under the law 
what is enacted by the hands of men. And the point of the passage is, is that punishment under the law is enacted by the Lord himself. And so you have in verse uh, 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 27, but a fearful, fearful, uh, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Who is devoured by the judgment of God? Answer, the enemy, the adversary, the unsaved, not the believer. Nonetheless, the passage says God does the, judges people. And you and I have to rectify with that, and we have to bring to bear what's being talked about in verse 29 when it says, how much sorer punishment. I would just say worse. How much worse punishment? How much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy? who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. With the sobering nature of the text refreshing our minds, we want to get to work to better grasp this warning of worse judgment than the judgment that was under the law. This morning, we want to begin with what the scripture calls presumptuous sin. Presumptuous sin. And for that topic, the most familiar text to the most of us, where the term presumptuous sin is found, would be Psalm 19. So let's turn together to the 19th Psalm. Psalm 19. After declaring that the physical creation reveals the glory and the handiwork of God, 19, 1 through 6, you then have, beginning at verse 7, that marvelous sevenfold description of of the written law of God in all of its perfections. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statue of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Note this one. The commandment of the Lord is pure, giving you eyes to see, enlightening the eyes. I think we talked about that in the last hour. Fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired today than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honey comb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in the keeping of them there is great reward. Uh, that sevenfold description of the word of God follows the general revelation of creation. Something of God can be known in creation. Something more of God can be known in revelation. Something of God can be known in the creation. Something more of God can be known in the revelation. And then... And then you have, towards the end of Psalm 19, uh, David's prayer, and he prays for two things. Uh, The one thing he prays for is easy to quote and easy to pray. It's right at the very end. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Boy, there's a beautiful prayer. You could pray that every day. But before David prayed that, 
he had something else to say of which we take note right now. Verse 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Sins I hide. Sins unknown. And in some case, even by the sinner. Verse 13, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins or willful sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Now my point is simply the fact that the most familiar reference to willful sin or presumptuous sin in our Bible is found right there in David's expression of Psalm 19. This prayer, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sin. What's David specifically praying about? He is praying about willful sin, or if you will, sin in the first degree. First degree sin. Sin that is willful, sin that is premeditated, sin that runs along the logic of that old country western song, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. Willful, presumptuous, high-handed sin. One of the things that is most clear in the study of the book of Leviticus is that there is no Old Testament sacrifice assigned for willful sin. There is no bull, no goat, no lamb whose blood can be shed under the law to atone for premeditated sin in the first degree. Such sin was to be dealt with in Israel as a nation with capital punishment at the hands of the congregation. Presumptuous sin was just not one particular really, 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 really bad sin. No, it was a variety of sins that were committed in a high-handed or willful way. Now let me give you a little more instruction from the Old Testament concerning this before we return our attention to the New Testament text in Hebrews 10. Let's go a little farther back into the Torah, Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17 is where we read a clear statement relative to this subject of presumptuous sin. Deuteronomy 17 and I'll pick up reading at verse 12. And the man that will do presumptuously and will not hearken unto the priest that standeth to minister there before the Lord thy God or unto the judge, even that man shall die and thou shalt put away the evil from Israel. 
And all the people shall hear and fear and do no more presumptuously or willfully. And so in that particular text, you have a clear indication of presumptuous sin as associated under the law with capital punishment at the hands of the congregation. And that's one of the things that's going to be brought to bear back in Hebrews chapter 10, where that the writer is going to say, under Moses, uh, uh, punishment was enacted uh, under the hands of men, at the law of God, but carried forward, as it were, by men. Now, even before this declaration in Deuteronomy 17 is the, recora- is the declaration and really the history uh, account of the national presumptuous sin of the whole nation of Israel prior to uh, the giving of the law after Kadesh Barnea before entering into the land of promise. Flip back just a few more pages to Deuteronomy chapter 1 and look at 43 to 45. Deuteronomy 1, 43 to 45. So I spake unto you, and ye, nation of Israel, would not hear, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord, and went presumptuously up into the hill. And the Amorites, which dwelt in that mountain, came out against you and chased you, as bees do, and destroyed you in Seir, even unto Horma. And ye returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not hearken to your voice, nor give ear unto you." In that account, Israel is acting in mass against the commandment of the Lord presumptuously, willfully. And as a result of that, it's disaster for them as a nation. So you have presumptuous sin that is associated with the nation of Israel in the whole. Probably the most familiar account of presumptuous sin, we're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but the most presumptuous Uh, uh, sense of sin of which we are all relatively familiar is the account of 2 Samuel chapter 11, 3 to 15, which records the presumptuous sin of King David. David knew better when he gazed upon the naked Bathsheba. David knew better when he called for Uriah to come to the place of his home after Uh, he found out that Bathsheba was pregnant with child. Uh, The record of presumptuous sin in King David uh, and that whole scene of immorality and that whole reality of David's contriving to cover up his sin and uh, ultimately uh, uh, the, uh, the result of Uriah's murder at the hands of the commander Joab as the troops pulled away and let him take the sword uh, for David's sin. Uh, All of that, all of that, of course, uh, is told in the historical record of of the Scripture. But I'd like us to stay 
uh, uh, in the Psalms by way of emphasis for just a couple of moments. Psalm 51 uh, is where I'd like to go next. And, uh, and look with this at this idea of that particular sin, that presumptuous sin in the life of David, as he ultimately comes to deal with it before God in uh, that moment of time uh, after the sin had long been committed and, uh, and long been uh, uh, lived uh, without a sense of, of repentance. Uh, that unrepentant David under the law should have been put to death. Let me say that again. That unrepented David under the law should have been put to death. He wasn't. People didn't have the guts to do right. But nonetheless, uh, David expresses the aspect of his uh, right-hearted concern uh, as it relates to the matter uh, in this 51st chapter of Psalm. And in verse 4, David says, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified. Lord, I'm saying that this sin is against you. And I'm saying that because you must declare that you are righteous. Because you are righteous. When thou speakest, whatever you say is righteous. And be clear when you judges. Let me add a word. Me. Me. David said to God, Father, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when you speak everything you say is perfect and true and right and everything you judge is perfect and true and right and you must be clear in judgment concerning me now, we've often dealt with it, but I just say again, for the sake of, of our understanding, uh, didn't David sin against Bathsheba? Yep. Didn't he sin against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah? Yep. Didn't David sin against his military commander, Joab? Yep. Didn't David sin against the whole congregation of Israel? Yep. You can classify David's sin in a number of different categories, in a number of different ways. And yet David is saying here, I recognize God, my sin is against you. My rebellion of heart is against you. And whatever you say about it is right. And whatever you judge me concerning it, it's right. Because you are right, O God. For the sake of time, jump down to verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. What's that? Murder. Deliver me from first degree murder. David was a murderer of the first degree. Premeditated, willful taking of a man's life. And the fact that he was king and could so command that it be done at the hands of, the, of another did not relieve David of his blood guiltiness. Deliver me, said David, to God from blood guiltiness. O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. 
Lord, I won't be able to say much about what a good king I've been. But I can surely talk of your righteousness. I can surely talk of your righteousness after you deliver me. Lord, O oh Lord, verse 15, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou desirest not burnt offerings. David said, God, I know better than to ask you how many bulls it would take to make up for uh, killing Uriah. I know better than to ask how many goats would it take in death to make up for adultery. I know better than to ask you uh, how many sheep it would take. And if uh, you gave me a number, if you gave me a number of bulls, if you gave me a number of, uh, of goats, if you gave me a number of, of lambs, I'd get it. I'd find it. I'd go get them. I'd buy them. I'd bring them. I'd, I'd sacrifice them all. But I know that you would not be pleased. That if every bovine on earth were slaughtered for my sin, it would not please you it would not be okay with you. Wow. Then David said, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. David said, God, I know something about you, and that is that you cannot despise a man poor in spirit. You cannot despise a person, a sinful, wicked, willful person. Brought to a place of brokenness, poverty, of spirit. And I'm going to rest, David said, in essence to God. Any hope I have left, right there. Right there. Only right there. Our New Testament text with, deals with the possibility of willful and high-handed sin being committed by a saved person as well as an unsaved person. And in fact, this is written to Jewish people who are, in the text, referred to as clearly saved. Let's get back there. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we willfully sin, if we sin willfully, after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. It's not about more bulls or more goats or more lambs or some other animal or some other sacrifice. 
But a certain, here's what's waiting, a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall, as a matter of fact, devour all the unsaved, devour all the adversaries. It is indeed the judgment of God, the fiery indignation of the Almighty that destroys the unsaved. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. If two or three witnesses came against a person who had committed willful sin, that person would be dealt with in the congregation of Israel with physical death at the hands of the congregation. Verse 29, of how much worse or sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy? who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. So now we come to the uniqueness of that New Testament willful violator. And in verse 29, there are three descriptive phrases that identify the violation here. Number one, trodden under foot the Son of God. We read a very familiar and very similar thought in the Beatitudes section this morning concerning salt that has lost its savor, that is trodden under the foot of men. Likewise, the seed that fell on uh, uh, stony ground on the walkway was trodden under the foot of of men. And indeed, the same concept, same wording is used to speak of somebody that loses their jewelry in the peg yard. You lost your, your pearls off your ears and your necklace uh, as you were slapping the pigs, and the pigs now have trampled underfoot your jewelry. You can't find it, it's all gucked up in the mud. And so that same idea of trodden underfoot is used in a number of different ways in the New Testament. Here, neglect and disregard for the honor of Christ constitutes a metaphoric trampling. A metaphoric trampling. Walking, as it were, on the honor of Christ by nature of the dishonor way in which a person lives. The second phrase is counted the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. We're talking about a saved person. For this saved person is described as sanctified. See it? That's what it says. And hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was, past tense, sanctified. The word unholy brings into focus the contrast between the things under the law called tame, unclean, and tahor, clean. The Hebrew word tame means contaminated, diseased, impure, defiled. And this is talking about an individual in a New Testament sense that has become contaminated, diseased, 
impure, and defiled. This person describes, or uh, as described, counts the blood of Christ in some way as being defiled, or inadequate, or insufficient. Their view of the death of Christ, their view of the blood of Christ, is that somehow it is not gloriously complete. And the ways in which that could be a a problem are, are too many to state. The Greek word here is koinon, which is otherwise uh, translated common. In Acts 10, when Peter is being led to uh, share the gospel with Cornelius uh, by way of a a dream, a vision, a revelatory vision, he sees a picnic basket coming down out of heaven with food on it that he never ate before. And God says to Peter, rise and eat. Peter said, oh, Lord, I know better than that. I've never, I've never eaten on common things. I, I've never eaten common things. I'm not going to eat common things. I'm not going to eat anything, indeed, that is to me. I've never eaten anything to me. I've never eaten anything defiled. I've never eaten anything contaminated. I've never eaten anything that was forbidden. And God said to Peter, listen, when I tell you to eat and tell you to eat it, you eat it because I make it clean. And so then Peter wakes up from his dream and is led to Cornelius to share the gospel with a Gentile dog, like me. But in that context of Peter's engagement, you have the same exact word, koinon. Peter said, I never ate anything common. I never ate anything koinon. I never ate anything defiled. And in this particular place, the offender is looking at the blood of Christ as a common thing, a defiled thing, an insufficient thing, an incomplete thing, and that is profoundly incorrect. And then, of course, you have the third phrase, and the third phrase has to do uh, with this, uh, uh, this idea of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, in verse 29, uh, of, done, of doing despite unto the spirit of grace. We get the English word hubris from that main verb, which in English refers to excessive pride, but the Greek word hubridzo speaks of shameful treatment of a person. And in this case, the person who is shamefully treated is the Lord Jesus. Other scriptures in the New Testament warn the believer of grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. These are sins against God. And as said at the very start, this violator is not in line for judgment and punishment at the hands of men, but at the hands of God. And, uh, and this uh, is being described here as sorrow or worse punishment in contrast to the law. Here's the point. The Lord will deal with all unrepentant sinning, believers or unbelievers. Physical death is on the table for both. And loss of reward is on the table for believers. Eternal death is only a reality for unbelievers. Verse 27 The judgment and fiery indignation of God in the whole devours the adversary. 
the enemy, the unsaved. But that does not take away the truth that the Lord, verse 30, will judge his people. And we're told that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The holy anger of God over all sin must be fully satisfied. And it either is satisfied in Christ or it's satisfied by the violator. The unbeliever will fall into the hands of thrice holy God and be rightly judged for their individual sin, cast into the eternal lake of fire. The holy anger of God must be satisfied over all unrighteousness. The believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in his body, whether good or bad says the scripture, and while eternal salvation is not the issue, unrepented sins will be dealt with to God's own satisfaction. Now you know already from our communion instructions last week that God does not wait to the Bema to start dealing with his people concerning their sins. He tells us of his chastening work and his present judgments brought to bear to turn our hearts towards home and to train us in godliness and a walk in the Spirit. We are told that if we would judge ourselves by the Scriptures and be sensitive to the indwelling Holy Spirit, we would not be judged of God in chastening. Nonetheless, as we read each month, the believer is chastened of the Lord that he should not be judged with the world. A believer is always a believer. But it is important, it is eternally important that we who have embraced Christ by faith live faithful. And who in the world could consider that great topic apart from the blessedness of our Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that the righteousness 